Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, the first of four special editions of Little Atoms, recorded live at Future Everything in Manchester on the 31st of March and the 1st of April 2014. First up, writer and artist James Bridal, and then hacker and designer Eleanor Sater. James Bridal has written for Wired, Icon, Domus, Cabinet, The Atlantic and many other publications and writes a regular column for the Observer newspaper on publishing and technology. In 2011, he coined the term new aesthetic and his ongoing research around the subject has been featured and discussed worldwide. And James, I deliberately missed the first couple of sentences of that introduction because I want to ask you to explain what you do yourself. And I say that because I've seen you describe it as quite a difficult thing to sum up elsewhere. Yeah, it is pretty hard in that... um like you covered some of the bases there but um, essentially for myself I'm always doing the same thing or I'm always interested in the same questions usually how visible that is is shaped by what I can get away with doing or where the, where the results of that end up so sometimes it ends up as writing and sometimes that's just personal essays sometimes mm-hmm. it's journalistic articles sometimes it's making things that are kind of examples and props for the kind of arguments I'm interested in making increasingly it seems to be artworks which is a new and interesting territory for me. But again, it's, it's sort of the same thing. I'm mm-hmm. just making the argument, hopefully, in slightly different forms and in slightly different ways as I go along. But yeah, the first sentence of that was probably writers, writer, artist, technologist, journalist, or, you know, yeah, all something, things. something along those lines. All right, well, we're going to touch on each of those things, I think, as we, as we, as we go through the talk. But I want to talk about <laughs> your past, really. You started off straight out of university. You did computer science at university and mm. then ended up in publishing. And I want to talk a little bit, first of all, about that, you know, those days in the, in the traditional publishing world at the point where you know, they were closing their ears to the arrival of technology and the e-book. Yeah, so I, I, mean, I did a master's degree in computer science specialising in artificial intelligence uh, in the kind of death days of the last wave of artificial intelligence, essentially. The tail end of kind of 30 years of research into artificial intelligence that basically failed, come to a kind of complete dead end in its theory. And so that was partly disillusioning. Also, just after four years in a kind of CS basement in a university, I just really hated computers. So I went off to work in what's basically the most computer-phobic industry, among a few others, uh, which is traditional book publishing, um, because I'd always loved books, which is kind of the standard reason for going into publishing, um, and particularly into literary publishing. It's kind of veneration of the object. And I did that for quite a few years, and I was uh, publishing mostly contemporary fiction, uh, at the end, for a few years, at a really, really tiny independent press, there were only four of us, 
which is great because it means you get to do everything. So I did the acquisitions, I did the editing, I did the kind of book design and layout, I designed the covers, I did marketing, you know, the full range of stuff. And it was great, but at the same time, I was also slightly rediscovering computers and getting back into the kind of social bits of the internet that I'd been very involved in as a teenager and then had sort of not been so bothered about while I'd been having fun at university. And noticing this kind of incredible disjunct between the kind of technologies that were coming up and, and what was happening to literature and, and, and books in general, these things that I really loved. And it was this extraordinary thing where there was all this obvious change starting to happen, um, but if you talk to anyone in, in the uh, publishing industry about technology in general, you've got this kind of horrified, horrified response. And particularly if you mention e-books, which didn't really quite exist then. Uh, you could sort of get a few PDFs, there were a few things starting to appear on mobile phones and stuff, but this is kind of pre- Amazon Kindle, this is pre-iPhone, this is pre-smartphones in general, and pre-all kinds of you know, e-ink readers, all that kind of stuff. So e-books weren't a thing yet, but anyone with eyes to see was aware that this must happen, right? These are just text files. We're going to find other ways to read them. But as I say, if you spoke to anyone in the publishing industry about this, they just put their fingers in their ears and go, ah, oh, this isn't going to happen. And that seemed deeply bizarre to me. Not so much that people would be worried about it from a business perspective, which I could totally understand, but that they were actually, it seemed, almost mentally incapable and sort of imaginatively incapable of thinking about what this thing might be like, what this experience might involve. And I became really interested in trying to understand why people had that response, mm. because they were wrong in multiple ways, not just wrong that this wasn't going to happen, but wrong about their own responses to it. You know, uh, literary editors and, and publishers were the first people to adopt Kindles when they did arrive, because they're brilliant for publishers who have to carry around huge manuscript files all the time to read. Whack it on a tablet, carry it around with you. It's brilliant. So even while they were picking up those, before they'd got anything like mass adoption, they were still going, well, no, you won't really catch on. E-books won't really happen. Contrary to their own kind of lived experience of the thing, which is, for me, became kind of symptomatic of a far wider cultural problem with conceptualizing digital experiences, that we, we lacked and continue to lack a kind of coherent framework for describing digital experience, mm -hmm. which is kind of most of our experience now. Yeah. We're now at the point where most of our experiences are kind of mediated through digital realm in some way, whatever that means. But they happen through interfaces and through devices and all this, and yet we have no good ways of thinking about that and, and therefore sort of being critical about it as well. Mm. And out of this comes your idea of the new aesthetic, and we'll, we'll move on in a moment to that, but just staying... Backwards, I mean, as I said, you did computer science at university, you worked in publishing, and there's this, you know, the, the classic two cultures thing of the sciences and the humanities. That's exactly what I do with my, my radio show. It basically tries to mix those two things. I come from a humanities background, but I'm interested in, in science, although know almost zero about it. And I'm just wondering if, and again, perhaps it's just because of the perspective I come from, because I do it, but it seems to me that technology and, and the internet and things are perhaps breaking down those sort of barriers a bit. Do you think that's true, or do you think that's just a bit optimistic? In some senses they are, but I think in a huge range of really important ways they're not. Uh, we're still not attributing agency to the creators of technologies yeah. in the way that are incredibly crucial. Uh, and we're not, therefore, examining the way these technologies are, are really acting in the world rather than the way they might appear to or the way they're marketed to or, you know, a number of other things. Well, I mean, do you think just the fact that I mean, technology, science, you know, I'm blurring the boundaries a bit, but the idea that just people have technology that's available to them and obvious to them, even if we don't understand, I don't know how that phone works, but you know what I mean, I use it constantly every day, and that brings that sort of form of technology into people's lives in a way that wasn't necessarily the case before 
Yeah, smartphones and the internet. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're ever more surrounded by these mm -hmm. things, and, and the, but they're also woven into the world in ways that we don't see so much of the time and that hugely affect us. And I'm always interested in looking for those things which are kind of the physical embodiment. So, I mean, to go back to the book thing for yeah. a second, one of the things about that I came to understand, I still think I understand, about this problem people have with conceptualizing ebooks is because they took what was the experience of reading the book, the actual time you spent with a book, the, the mental processes that happen, the kind of incredible reanimation of story and character and stuff that happens in your mind as you, as you go through a book, and they embedded all of that into the physical object itself. Yeah. And that's great. I mean, that's brilliant. That's one of the things books are good for, and it's something we've always done. We always embed our experiences and, and our memories into into the physical we mm -hmm. do it with place as well you know that thing of going back to somewhere and this memory of something that happened there coming back it's because that memory is sort of encoded in that place in, in the physical and so losing the grip on the physical embodiment of that memory kind of terrifies people it's kind of deeply existentially kind of worrying because suddenly the thing that you've anchored deep core important experiences to has sort of vanished and gone away. But there are other um, sensory uh, emotional experiences as well. So a book, obviously, it feels a certain way, it smells, you know, people like, the, you know, the, but the I, I, reading I never, in the bath, all of that sort of thing. All of those things are basically true of, of digital technologies Absolutely, as well. Course, yeah. But, but the, the sort of individual... <laughs> quality that the, the book itself seemed to sort of be vanishing yeah but but and that's fine maybe that's just what happened but you realize that these the thing that i realized is that the, that cultural experience is not purely a physical one you know because that's what the publishers and people who are scared of this sort of talk about it as the references are always to these physical things they're about the smell they're about the shape of it they're never about the actual temporal experience of, uh, mm -hmm. that you spend with this stuff and that's the bit that at that time, and, and still I think, is not really made visible by these things. But taking that approach of looking for the physical embodiment of this thing takes you to other interesting places as well. So I've done a lot of work looking at um, the physicality of the internet itself. Mm -hmm. So you go and look at, well, so where is the internet? The internet is sort of everywhere, but it, but it has solid chunks. It has data centers. Um, it has server rooms, it has cables, it has fibre optics under the ground and cable stations at the edge of oceans and cables that go under those oceans. This is the physical embodiment of, a, of an immaterial network. And when you start studying those things, you realise some of these signal qualities of the internet, of, of the way it kind of abstracts things, because you realise that these, these physical locations are replacing other physical mm -hmm. locations. You might notice there's a technology conference going on inside this massive town hall. It's largely because most of the functions of an old town hall, just as most of the other functions of civic architecture, like libraries and, or the places you go to vote or banks, have all been abstracted to these other very large, very physical locations, but that are hidden from sight. Mm -hmm. And that means a huge amount of the things that they do are hidden from sight as well, and we're back to the politics again. Yeah, again, because all of that stuff is not accessible. You know, we talk about an open internet, but I mean, not necessarily anybody would want to, but you can't go and look at those server rooms, do you know what I mean? You can't go and see those. No, and in cables. fact, if you do, you will largely try to be chased off by yeah, security yeah, yeah. guards. <laughs> and that is sort of emblematic of the, the, the power that kind of emerges from these places. OK, so let's, um, let's nail down the, the idea behind the, the new aesthetic then. How do we... Because new aesthetic, we're not talking about a, a design thing here, are we? We're talking... Well, we're talking about many, many things. So I'm always very careful never to pin this thing down. It's a title that I very casually gave to a whole set of ideas uh, that are still very much ongoing. And one of the core things about it is that it's designed not to nail a thing down, right? <laughs> yeah, because this discussion is still open, it's still ongoing, and there is no manifesto for this. It's, it's a practice, it's a process. But 
It came from several lines of, mm-hmm. lines of interest. One of that is, what does this stuff look like, essentially? What, do we, what can we point at when we talk about it? And that doesn't just mean physical things. It can mean the way things look. It can mean aesthetics. But actually, because it's digital networked, because it's programmed, because it's, in large part, software generated, we also can't just point at those things without pointing at the things behind them that generate them. The other thing was just, like, why are we at this, what still, to me, continually feels like this kind of stuck point of understanding these processes. One of the major thrusts for the new aesthetic was to come up with like better and more contemporary futures. It was part of the kind of horror of nostalgia, mm-hmm. essentially, was a huge part of it. It's no, no coincidence that it really kicked off for me around the time of the kind of jubilee, this kind of like dark Tory heart of Britain, kind of like re-emerging with Festival of Britain iconography, and this kind of all of those trappings of nostalgia, of kind of retro and vintage and cupcakes and, and, and facial hair, this idea that, uh, essentially, that there is an authenticity that can only be located in the past. The, the things we are generating now, again, are, are virtual and digital, and, and therefore they don't really count. And for me, so much of that, the, the contemporary obsession, and you know, frankly, contemporary triumph of that kind of nostalgia, is due to the fact that the, the things that we would traditionally pin our ideas of authenticity on are, you know, immaterial. And, and that, you know, that those previous visions of the future have, have failed to a large extent. You know, the, the vision of the future was NASA and Concorde and this kind of, you know, shiny space future. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's not the future we got. And while we were looking for that future, this other future kind of crept along. But it's, it's, it's in these little weird boxes in our pockets. Uh, and it's not, it's not visible to us in the same way. So... It felt incredibly necessary for me to point at huge numbers of things mm. that were more like, not, and, and really not the future. The short, as always in these discussions, the future is shorthand for the present, just the present you haven't really noticed. To be able to point at those things, but also in order to have something to talk about, to point at while we talk about the things that stand behind them. It's interesting, I mean, you, you describe that nostalgia in sort of very conservative terms, the sort of empire and, you know, the coronation Britain of, of that era. But, of course, people are nostalgic for the you know, Festival of Britain, Britain, because that also symbolises to people in a, in a recession, you know, the post-war consensus and Clement Attlee and the NHS and things. So it's also something but that, that people that's why, that's to. why this nostalgia is even more dangerous yeah. because it exists at a time when, when those values... <laughs> The politics that drove those aesthetics mm-hmm. are actually being demolished behind Absolutely, the scenes, yeah. even while this, this kind of shiny thing is laid over the top of it. So I guess I want to know how this, uh, how this is going to change our relationship specifically to literature, going back to, you know, we started off this discussion talking about books, and we can talk about sort of technology and, and our interface with the internet, but how does this, how, does, how are we changing our, our relationship with, with art? Ooh, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> I will, I'll, t- I'll talk about this tiny, tiny subsets of yeah, that. Yeah, sure, um, absolutely. I'm, because I'm always convinced that there must be kind of signs of something resembling the new appearing at times, always going out and looking for them. And you can do that within literature, or within literatures, or within text, or within language mm-hmm. in certain ways. So there will, for the foreseeable at least, always be the kind of you know, 500-page literary novel even though that is, a, that is a form that has been entirely created by the previous technology, which is the format of the book itself. Right? But, but we, we like it, it's a nice kind of thing, it will carry on. But it's not the only kind of writing that's going on, and we know that as well. So first of all, you see that the technology kind of resuscitates previous forms, yeah. is the kind of first thing that you see happening. So you see a lot more essay writing going on, you see these different kind of spaces for literature, you see entirely different kinds of network discourse appearing that just aren't, you just can't nail them down to the page mm-hmm. because they exist on this kind of huge 
kind of plane of, of different text that our eye is constantly kind of skimming and skipping across as we browse and, and follow links and so on and so forth. It, it's simply assumed mm-hmm. a new form. The thing that I'm always looking for, one of my personal obsessions, is looking for the forms of writing that emerge through what I term kind of collaboration with machines to some mm. extent. This isn't all of it, but it's an interesting area to look at it in that you see these kind of tiny, tiny forms emerging. Uh, and my, my two kind of opposing examples for this are... Um, always the New York Times haiku and, and Google Poetics, as, as I say, two tiny, tiny examples of this. New York Times haiku is a, is a little system that they built at the New York Times that reads articles that are going out onto their website and finds haiku within them, um, finds sentences that have haiku format and, and just posts them to a separate little New York Times haiku blog. And they're these occasionally strange, occasionally beautiful little snippets of text, but they're being presented back to us by a machine Um, that has found within them a kind of poetry that the author themselves didn't know they were writing. So that's one form of a kind of potential collaboration. Uh, The other one that I love is is Google Poetics. I don't know if anyone's seen this, but um, you know when you um, start typing into Google and it auto-completes with a a list of suggestions of possible phrases? And people have taken those and they've separated out those little little paragraphs that will start with the first, you know, same two or three words into their own separate type of poetry. Now that is something else entirely. That is a poetry that we are all writing together. Uh, but again, unconsciously, that's kind of edited together by our interaction with the machine. Those are like really surface examples, but they represent for me the start of what I call this, this kind of collaboration with the machines because it is intentional. And we get into really thorny territory here mm-hmm. because you have to be very careful to what extent you're prepared to kind of anthropomorphize technology, to what extent you're prepared to attribute agency to it. Like these systems all have authors, but they might have multiple authors. Uh, and they might have multiple authors who are entirely unaware of what each other were doing. And, and something else has happened in the melding there, which I still feel we're only beginning to address. I want to move on to look at some of the works that you've got on display at, at Future Everything, some of the artworks. But before we do that, one that comes out of an artwork of yours, or you know, a preoccupation of yours that comes out of, again, the new aesthetic thing, which I absolutely love, is the, um, the, the Render Ghost, the collecting. And tell us, tell us about those, because it's just, it's just really great fun. So the Render Ghost is my term for the people that you see in architectural renderings. If you've seen on big hoardings around building sites around most contemporary cities, you see these big, glossy renderings, uh, these CGI images of what we are going to build here. And they are um, sort of terrifying and awesome in, in mixed measures. And I became interested in them because I was interested, in, in, again, in this way that software shapes the world. The huge amount of the built environment now is, is essentially generated by these softwares. And as much as I love many of my architect friends who get very angry with me for talking about it like this, much of it is not created by architects. It's created by kind of developers and planners. It's created by people with not years and years of training in how to make us a lovely built environment, uh, but people who are largely very good at pulling down drop-down menus in SketchUp. And this is what the world is starting to resemble. And you have to ask, who is the architect of this world? Is it you know, the person pulling the menus down? Is it the designer back at Autodesk in California? Is it some strange synthesis hybrid creator made up of them and the software and everything else. And you see these architectural forms kind of proliferating in the world that are basically the default styles of of software programs. And I became fascinated by them, but then as more and more as I looked at these images, and I've accumulated huge collections of these images, I started to see these people recurring in them as well, and started to track down some of these people. Because these people, for me, they kind of stand in for us Mm -hmm. in this kind of uncertain digital future. Um, they, They exist in this realm of the kind of immediate, possibly illusory kind of future, the future we imagine but we'll never actually quite get to live in. 
um, because, you know, it never quite turns out that shiny and beautiful, um, or because, you know, it turns out to be private land and security guards will chase you off it. So I've, I've done a lot of work, in short, in, in, in trying to track down those people. I got very close. I ended up in Albuquerque in New Mexico mm -hmm. last year, where I thought there was a particular set of these people I discovered, of about 500 individual cut-out people, that uh, was produced by a, a photo service kind of 15 years ago. And basically, it was, it was the first set of high-resolution people to get pirated on the internet. So it's been used by every single student architect in pretty much the world, it seems, and by many other kind of planning departments. And I, I want to meet some of these people because I photographed them in New York and in London and in Sydney, the same people appearing in these different buildings all over the world. And so I'm still trying to track them down. And I went to Albuquerque last October, but later find out that's not where they're from, so I'm still back on the trail again. Presumably those people also wander around the world and see themselves in places they weren't expecting. I, I have no was. idea if they know. <laughs> um, I, I, I hugely suspect they have no idea that this has happened to them. Well, you just mentioned something that actually we, we didn't get to talk about in, in the talk with, with Adam earlier, which is this idea of how much of the space is, is corporate-owned, has private security guards, you know, places that look to the eye like public spaces. And we're, we're getting on to talk about surveillance. And so that's clearly, a, a, you know, an interesting development that how do we be more connected in a world that actually, you know, we don't even know whether we're really allowed to go there or behave in certain ways. Yeah, and, 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 and the, the decision of who gets to act in those spaces mm -hmm. is, is itself technologically mediated and, again, not always visible. But some of the aspects of that visibility or invisibility are possible because they're using the technology. So, you know, the fact that CCTV cameras do sprout all over these locations is at least visible to us. You know, that these are, that because these political intentions get embodied in the technology, they also do become kind of, if we are literate in them, visible to us in new ways. Mm -hmm. And I, I think there's a, there's a really interesting kind of comeback to that. Before we look closely at the, at, the, at the artworks, let's talk about this idea that, you know, you've basically filtered your activism into, into art. Where does this decision come from to, to do that rather than... I mean, I know you're obviously working in, you know, all sorts of mediums as well, but specifically the artwork. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of... It wasn't intentional, um, is, the, is the short version. Various things kind of happened. So for two examples, the first one is I've been talking and lecturing about this things that I'm interested in and that people are willing to listen to me about for a while. And I got into the habit of making props for mm -hmm. the talks, things that I could, as I say, just kind of point at to go, here's a bunch of theory and this is what I mean. And here is like an object that for me kind of describes it a little bit. But they were really only intended to be kind of props. Mm -hmm. And then those things started to slightly take on a life of their own and people started asking them to exhibit them in their own right, which for me is sort of terrifying because it, it bothers me that they're sat there and I'm not stood next to them kind of blah, blah. but it turns out that's actually <laughs> what artists are supposed to do so um, uh, you're not supposed to like stand by your work and talk about it all the time it's supposed to talk for itself <laughs> um, so there's that route but there's also the fact that you know well it's the same thing I, I just sort of do these things and, and the art world has been particularly receptive to them I've been doing this series of for the last couple of years large scale outdoor installations which are called the drone shadows which are one-to-one -one outlines of military drone aircraft, uh, which is uh, simply about marking out the scale of these things, uh, which are very, very large, very solid, but yet almost incredibly invisible pieces of contemporary technology. And simply to draw you know, a white outline of one of them makes it visible in ways that makes it possible to actually have a discussion about them. I did one of them. I was asked to do another one by someone who saw a picture of it, and I was then asked to do subsequent ones. 
And it's, it's been odd watching the way in which that work is kind of received in different places, but also how you can try and do other things with it as well. Um, because as soon as it kind of concretizes into an artwork, which the first one was not really intended to be, that also kind of limits it in very serious ways. Mm -hmm. So I was being asked to go and do them. And it's like, after I've done a... F and and it's, uh, I can talk a bit about why each one is sort of interesting in its own right, the ones that I've done. But I also don't want to just draw drone shadows forever or, frankly, anymore. <laughs> so I made a guide to drawing them. Mm -hmm. And I released that as an open kind of diagram that anyone can go and draw them. And yes, there's a sort of bit of kind of solar wit history of art stuff in there. There's also just the fact that anyone can go on the internet and download a plan of these things. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no kind of official nature of it. But, but like, here, if you want to do it, here's the technique for doing it, which does kind of spread that a little bit further. And I don't know, maybe moves it slightly out of art and back into activism again, yeah, but yeah, also absolutely. just different forms of art as well. But that's interesting then, because that there, yeah, that sort of blurs the line, because then, you know, you hand it all over to other people to go off and do, and it takes it back to the, the actual political point of saying, yep. you know, here's it. Here's the thing. One of the, the artworks that you've got on display here at, at, the, at the festival, the surveillance folder, just tell us, please, I'll let you tell oh, us yeah. what that is. And that, what. That's sort of a weird one because it's, you know, I was asked to make a thing for a very specific brief, yeah. which was um, a wearable, the thing was called Wearable Futures, and it was a conference about wearable technologies, which, can, which is, is actually very broad. What I was, and it is effectively another prop. It very much is. Because what I was interested in talking about, because I don't make tech and I, I don't want to make wearable things particularly, but I'm, I'm interested in the fact that the wearables debate always seemed to be about kind of what sort of emanated from the body, mm -hmm. essentially, that, that kind of measured the body or like kind of reacted to the body itself rather than what impacted on the body. What this work is, the surveillance border, the border is... Um, I've spent a lot of time looking at medieval armor on Wikipedia, is a, is a, is a sort of shoulder piece from medieval armor that, that goes just over the top of the shoulder like this and protects you from downward strikes. This boulder uh, incorporates a, um, a little light measurement sensor uh, with a lens that filters the light. The most common frequency for the little infrared LEDs you'll see around uh, CCTV cameras. So CCTV cameras that are capable of operating the kind of near IR, which is a lot of them, You'll see. If you go outside at you know, dusk or at night and you point your iPhone at a security camera, you'll quite often see it actually turns red because your le because camera lenses are sensitive in different ways to the eye, which is a whole other thing. So, but when it receives one of those signals, it then sends a little signal to those um, little transcutaneous electric pulse pads that people wear on, you know, to boost their six-pack, which is basically a short, small electric shock. And so every time you walk beneath a CCTV camera, you get a little kind of shock in your shoulder. And it illustrates, for me, the, the fact that so much of the computation which is supposed to kind of open us up to the world also kind of reveals us mm -hmm. to the world, essentially, and makes us kind of visible. And it's about turning around the direction of that perceived flow of the technology, making you more aware of the, the technology that surrounds you rather than the, the technology that you're carrying. And just points to the fact that as more and more power allegedly accrues to us through the uses of technology, that technology also accrues kind of elsewhere. And the more powerful the thing is that you carry around in your pocket, the more power that you are actually giving to kind of distant cloud servers that provide most of the processing. And this thing retreats into the kind of architectural around you. Yeah, this is what I want to get us to, because I saw, I think, on a, it might have been your TED Talk or another video that's online, you're talking about this, this metaphor for e-books, about them being, like, to, to the people in publishing, like a... Uh, a snail crawling towards them very powerfully but very, very slowly. And that seems to be the same thing that's happened with, with surveillance in that 
on the one hand, yeah, as you said, the, the surveillance industry is, is out there, it's visible, you can see the cameras. But we're all carrying around these devices in, in our pockets as well, which, which we love. They've transformed our lives, everybody's into it. People happily hand over all their reams of data to Facebook and whatever without any, you know, Facebook are clearly getting more out of it than, than I am, for instance. And that, that's something that's just, we've passively accepted it, really, I think. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're in constant negotiation with it. And, uh, you know, I think frequently we, we end up on the wrong side of that negotiation, not always. The point is, though, that we always have the chance to regain it as well. Mm -hmm. You know, these things run on the same infrastructures. This is what's really key. Uh, and this is what a lot of my work on drones is about as well, is that pointing out that the, essentially the, the technologies of, you know, to go to the extreme, technology of oppression and technology of liberation are running on the same base infrastructure, uh, one that we actually have a huge amount of access to, one which we can actually get quite heavily involved in, which we can actually make visible in certain ways if, if we have the will and the, the knowledge to look. But, um, yeah, the technology itself, bearing in mind what I said earlier about questions of agency, is not the kind of determining factor here. It's, it's always, you know, the intention of, of us and of other users and other agents who may have different intentions for it. But this does... It's a reminder, it's a nice reminder that, you know, these technology we love, you know, I could always finger Apple, but it's the same for, for Samsung or, or whoever, that all of this stuff isn't, you know, I think somebody else has used this metaphor, but this isn't made by elves in some cave somewhere. It's like, you know, it, it's, it's, there's a whole no, wave of misery across the world that delivers this thing in its lovely, nicely packaged box into our house. Um, well, this is metaphors that may be considered dangerous, like the cloud, you know, mm -hmm. which, is, which is not, a, as you say, a big, fluffy, distant thing. It is massive, massive sheds full of computers. Mm -hmm. And that is a, and being aware of that, I think, is, you know, always, always necessary and a good reminder. One of the, the other artworks that's on here, you've mentioned the drones a, a number of times, and there's a few things I wanted to talk about on the, the drone artwork. Um, there's a, in the Constant War or the Permanent War exhibit, there's a um, photograph of, that's taken from satellites of, um, well, you can explain it better This is the Watching the Watchers yeah, series, yeah. yeah. So the Watching <laughs> the Watchers series is a series of images taken from publicly available digital maps uh, from a variety of sources. A lot of them are from Google Maps, some are from Bing and Nokia Maps and these other service providers. A couple of them are directly from NASA. There's some are on show here, there's a lot more online. And it's a collection that I'm adding to all the time. And what they are are pictures of drones. So again, we're back to my you know, constant obsession with these things, which is worth slightly explaining, which is that um, I'd sort of becoming interested in these things a few years ago, and I was very, very careful in my interest of them, or I tried to be very careful in my interest in them, because they have a kind of dark glamour to them. You know, and mm -hmm. I, am, I buy aviation magazines. Um, I'm susceptible to the kind of glamour of, of, of military aircraft and of, of all kinds of aircraft and, 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 and just the engineering and the nerdery of them as well. But the drones felt like to be something else. And it's, I spent a lot of time trying to understand for myself what it was that I found so fascinating about them. And, and in part, it's because this, this interplay of visibility and visibility that reproduces so much of the contemporary technology, something that is a physical object but yet is, is designed to remain completely unseen, but that also kind of has the same affordances of you know, our regular, more domestic network technologies that allows kind of sight and action at a distance, particularly violent in this case, but essentially the same kind of effect as any other piece of network technology. So they become kind of avatars for the network itself. And you, in that, you, the politics of, that, of those networks kind of become incredibly visible. And so with the Watching the Watchers series, I was interested in the fact that these things which designed to become, that use the, the absolute cutting edge of contemporary technologies in order to be invisible to us. And by that, by contemporary network technologies, I mean both like stealth uh, kind of coatings and I mean the media. 
are also made visible by our domestic social technologies, the, the same mapping technologies that we use to find our way to the shops. That there seemed to be this incredible kind of missing link there to point out the kind of sameness and commonality of these infrastructures. The fact that um, I can actually go on to uh, you know, a digital mapping service on my laptop and look up drone bases around the world and, and see these things that are occurring. And I did a, huge, you know, a lot of research into that. And, you know, but it's not, none of it's secret. You know, there's, this stuff is published. There were newspaper reports about where drone bases were. There's, um, you can go onto Wikipedia and find out which you know, RAF units control drones, and then you can look on their own website to see where they're based. And then you can just zoom in there on Google Maps, you know. But there's a kind of, again, this kind of idea that that kind of information is not available to us or shouldn't be available to us or whatever, but, but it is. But does, does that visibility make it somehow, again, more, we're, we're more ambivalent to it if, if, we, if, if we think, oh, well, they're writing it all up on Wikipedia, so it can't be that bad, right? Well, yes and no in terms of what they're actually writing up on Wikipedia, mm. I think. It still makes a huge difference, I think, to make these things visible. Watching the Watchers is, is, um, you know, is a kind of direct example of that. The, 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 other, the other project that's very similar is this project called Dronestagram, mm -hmm. where I track the... Um, well, I follow various organizations, the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, the Long War Journal in the US, who track drone ass assassinations in Pakistan, in the Yemen, uh, in Somalia, uh, write reports about these things which aren't reported very often. I mean, they are starting to be reported more and more, but for years these things were, went completely unreported. And not only that, they went completely unimaged, mm -hmm. essentially. That there was this whole war going on that, that, was, that was completely unseen. And that's, when you think about that, that is deeply, deeply strange in the modern world. Because we've had almost 100 years of a mass media that sent photographers. Or, you know, before that, we, we sent illustrators to battlefields in the 19th century. You know, and, and the Times the next day would carry you know, pen and ink illustrations of battlefields. And yet there's a whole war going on now that's waged these highly technological means that we don't see anything mm. of. And that seemed like a critical juncture. And yet, at the same time, we spent the last 10 years building you know, these systems that allow me to take out my phone and see through satellites. And so to bring those things kind of together seemed like a, a very natural, but also it turns out a fairly powerful thing to do. It's still incredibly distanced. It's still incredibly technologically augmented. I don't claim any sort of privilege of on-the-ground on understanding of this. You know, I'm not stood in this sort of Yemeni village where this has happened. And I'm still essentially taking the position of the aerial view, which is itself this kind of incredibly privileged and, and, and powerful view on the site. But yet, there's a, a closing of a, of a few loops there, a start to be able to kind of think about this a bit more carefully. There's a commonly heard and quite persuasive in some ways argument about drones, about the fact that, you know, this enables us to do things without putting, you know, our boys in, in harm's way. And obviously, you know, nobody likes seeing dead soldiers come back and all that, so people think that's, a, that's a quite a good idea. And I think what I find most terrifying about it is not necessarily even just you know, beyond the, the rights and wrongs and the politics of certain wars that we're, that we're involved in where these things are being used, the idea that it just enables us to do perhaps things in the future that logistically before we wouldn't have been able to even consider doing. Do you know what I mean? So it just opens up yeah. the sort of sphere of, of, of war in ways that I think are unimaginable at the moment, and that's the thing that I, I find most scary about it. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. The idea is that we are sort of fighting, you know, the same wars in, in better, more bloodless ways. It's ridiculous. We're fighting new wars, wars that, that sort of weren't possible before and, and, and very much changing the nature of it. But, yeah, we're, like, in terms of the, the sort of slightly, you know, further ahead thing, we're facing the far 
more creepy follow-on issues from that kind of stuff, which also requires exactly the kind of analysis which we should be generating now. So there's a group, for example, a coalition of NGOs at the moment called the Campaign to Stop Killer Robots, um, who have picked a brilliant name, but are also very, very serious people. And they're a coalition of a huge number of, of, of big NGOs, ones you've heard of, sort of you know, Amnesty and um, people like that, and much smaller ones as well. And what they're concerned about is the next generation of fully autonomous weapons. Once you have a drone flying up about there, at what point does the human get removed from the loop on deciding when a weapon is released, mm -hmm. or when someone is killed, and so on and so forth? Now, there's a chance there's a little bit of this happening already, but hopefully not too much. But it's definitely coming, there's no doubt about this. And it's going to kind of keep coming. And it's interesting who's looking at this, because those NGOs who are involved in, in that campaign are um, the same people who spent 10 years fighting for the UN uh, legislation against cluster munitions and, and uh, landmines. Right? So they've got chops, they've got form, and they know they're serious, and they know how to get proper legislation in that, that kind of works hard and does a lot. But, you know, they're fighting the same battle now about this future of uh, autonomous weapons, but you don't have the same emotional imagery to point to in this battle as you did with, you know, cluster munitions. There's a, there's a lot of imagery, horrific imagery out there waiting to be kind of pointed at to mm -hmm. make your point in that campaign. When you start talking about killer robots, we're in this very uncharted territory, and the issues are the same we've been talking about all along. Mm -hmm. How do you draw a picture of an invisible system? How do you make something that is entirely virtual, entirely digital, real enough for people to have a serious political you know, and um, critical discussion about it. Same issue over again. Mm -hmm. All right, we better wrap this up then because we're a bit over time again. So, um, yeah, give you a thanks to uh, James Bridal. Thank you very much. <laughs> Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
I'm Alex Kratoski, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Eleanor Sater is a hacker, designer, artist and writer. She works to increase understanding in how complex systems operate and redesigning them to work, or at least fail, better. Her work is transdisciplinary, using everything from electronics, software and paint, to social rules and words as media, with which to explore and shape our interactions with the world. Her focuses include the seamless integration of technology into the lived experience, the humanity of objects and the built environment, and systemic resilience and conviviality. Eleanor, thanks for joining me for this chat, first of all. Um, hacker, designer, artist and writer. It also says barbarian on your website, but yeah. they dropped that from this, uh, from the, from this little, little blurb. Let's talk generally about, I guess, how, how do all of those disciplines sort of cross over in your work? I mean, so what I basically do is I look at big socio-technical systems and I figure out how they're going to break. Mm-hmm. And this comes from a practice or ways in which they're, they're obviously going to break, not necessarily all of the ways. And this comes from partially like starting as a practice as a security consultant in, in computer security world. Um, and you know, it's gone various different places, but that's, like, that's the core of all of the different stuff that I do is that understanding of you know, this is a system, this is the feel of the system, this is where the, the breaking points are. Mm-hmm. And that then gets expressed in, in a bunch of different ways and, and a bunch of different systems, you know. And so, you know, sometimes it is it is actually security work that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. You know, I do a certain amount of consulting for NGOs and news organizations still. I've mostly stopped doing commercial work. Mm-hmm. You know, but sometimes it's it's writing about governance structures or filing bugs on constitutions mm-hmm. or whatever. It's a bunch of, you know, various different mediums depending on the on the problem at hand. Yeah. Although you just, I mean, you've mentioned you're not doing it so much now, but the sort of corporate security work mm-hmm. and the work where you describe yourself as a hacker and the work for NGOs and, and sort of organisations where you're looking at sort of like open source things as well. You know, how do those two things cross over? Well, I mean, so the, the corporate security world is, is just, the, it's the background that I came from. It's mm-hmm. sort of where, where I came up professionally. The, you know, and I, I still do describe myself as a hacker because that's, in my mind, that's someone who plays with systems, mm-hmm. you know, in the, in the broadest possible sense. It's, it's, here's a system, let's poke at it and see what it'll do. You know, oh, if I go over here, you know, what does it do over here? If I push that button, what happens? So increasingly in, I've kind of moved from the commercial world off to NGO land as far as my professional career goes. And that's mostly looking at support for high-risk users um, specifically because that's the, I call a high-risk user a normal user who has someone with power who doesn't like them. Um, and we find that people become high-risk users very, very quickly. You kind of flip back and forth between categories. You know, you, one day you wake up and you realize that that blog post that you sent out last night said just the wrong thing and now you have a world of trouble. Or one day you wake up and you realize that there's a thing you care about that you're going to go try to get changed in the world, and now you live in a different universe. Mm-hmm. And we have not done very well by our high-risk users for the past um, however many decades of the Internet. We're increasingly realizing just how poorly we've done by them, and it's time to fix that. The projects that I've been working on have been kind of exploring that space and figuring out what the parameters are, and now I'm kind of ready to start figuring out how to scale responses up. We'll look at some of those individual projects as yep. we go through the talk. But um, I just want to talk about really basic terms, complex systems. What mm-hmm. sort of things are we talking about in terms of you know, the making things? We'll get to you know, what we yeah. mean by fail better in a minute. Yeah. But you know, what sort of complex systems are we talking about? I mean, a complex system is it's generally any system whose behavior is not predictable on inspection. Mm-hmm. There are various definitions of complexity depending on whether you're a San Diego or um, not San Diego, Santa Fe Institute, mm-hmm. like 
strange attractor or complexity person where you have sensitivity to initial conditions and strange lits and all of that kind of stuff. And then there's the, the more Annapolis-centric complex systems are, are nested hierarchical structures. But those are really just different models for different kinds of behavior. And, you know, the different models work better in some cases than others. To me, it, it could be anything from, like, say, a big enterprise accounting system that has dependencies all over, all over the shop. And you don't really know what's coming from what and what's going where. Mm-hmm. And, oh, if I poke here, I can break this completely unrelated system. Or... Oh, I don't know, like your average collective apartment is a very complex social structure. You know, there's all of these different rules and scripts and social norms, many of which are unstated. I remember I was staying with some friends in Sweden, and it was just a small apartment. There's three or four of them there, and uh, they were interviewing a potential new roommate, and it was, and they ended up doing it in English for kind of my benefit just because I was in the room. And... Uh, you know, at one point they were like, so this is a normal compl- or a normal collective apartment, you know, all of the usual rules as far as how dishes work and that kind of stuff. And it was like, oh, wow. As someone who's not, who's not familiar with that specific rule set, it's like this is enough of a thing that there is an understood social script for collective apartment in a Scandinavian context. Mm-hmm. That is a fascinating, specific social system. Just like you might deal with a technical system like an enterprise accounting structure, you can look at the structure of that social group as a thing to play with and tweak the rules of and that kind of thing. And you have to, you don't generally need to worry about consent in accounting systems like the the various servers implicitly consent by not having personal agency. At least we think so far. Uh, But... uh, (laughs) You know, but you know, when you when you start playing with social systems, and especially social systems where the force of law gets involved, there's yeah. a very different set of issues around consent and that kind of thing. You know, I'm not a Silicon Valley style disruptor who thinks it's reasonable to just walk into someone's lived experience and oh, I'm going to change the way you get food now, and you're going to have to deal with my structure for your basic mm-hmm. everyday needs. Like that's not okay to do unilaterally, but that still leaves us plenty of room to play and poke and and figure out, you know, certainly what what the possibilities are. Yeah, I like this. The as I mentioned, the the concept of you know failing better because yeah. I guess it's you know we, we can never. Necessarily All know fail. what things yeah. are going to fail in which way yeah. because it's always going to happen. Yeah. So let's talk about this this concept. How do we you know how do we uh, work towards that to to, to a, a point where and perhaps not we can stop things from failing, but you know at least have some sort of prediction of, of how it's going to happen. You know, in some ways, I'm actually I'm I'm sort of pro failure. I think mm. that a lot of our systems should fail much more often. Just at very different scales. The the problem right now is that is that you know we design these systems which are fault tolerant to a point and we get these giant cascading structural failures like the way the electrical grid is designed and to a certain degree electrical grid like systems are going to have this property but um, you know you get these giant cascades of failures where if we instead possibly tolerated smaller failures more Mm -hmm. often like okay yeah your personal house may lose power you know, slightly more often than it would, but it's very unlikely that we will get, you know, like the entire eastern seaboard of the United States going offline in a single pop or, well, a cascading chain of of 50 of them. But that changes the way that we can respond. If your house dies and you are set up so that, oh, I can just run an extension cord to my neighbor's power system and, boom, we're back online. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that that kind of, like, hyper-disconnected grid would be remotely sensible, but that, you know, that shift in mm-hmm. failure structures is an example of how you can look at failures engineering as a specific discipline in system interventions. 
How would you apply that then to, I mean, obviously, we're talking about the power grid, we're talking about energy security, but in talking about company security, data security and things, is it, you know, is it worthwhile to have those sort of failures? I, well, it depends. I mean, one of the things that we... So right now, computer systems are designed with security as a very atomic property, which is a real problem. If you have a failure, like if you have a failure in a trust domain, like say you have you know, a, a large domain join system, you've got thousands of servers that all authenticate to the same central system. If you compromise credentials in there, you now own everything. You know, you've owned the entire enterprise in one go. Um, this is really unfortunate because every system has holes. And one of the things we're seeing with a lot of the Snowden revelations is that, yeah, any single given system, someone can generally get through. And the way that we are designing our systems right now you know, as soon as that happens, you've lost everything. You know, whether it's just your computer where as soon as one process is compromised, mm-hmm. the entire system is compromised, or, you know, a large enterprise, a CA system, whatever. So one of the things that I'm interested in looking at is how can we design systems that fail in, in less atomic ways, mm-hmm. that, that have a more organic model of compromise? Um, and then also how can we look at the... Um, Look at security as an epidemiological and a public health function so that we start, it starts, starts to be more about detection mm-hmm. and trend analysis. And, you know, this happens in the enterprise and this happens in, you know, like, you know, Microsoft and Google definitely have their own, not quite epidemiological, but, but um, you know, statistical models of how accounts get compromised and that kind of thing. But that only works because they have that sort of centralized authority. And bringing that out to a um, to the end users, mm-hmm. you know, and to, to high risk individuals, so that they can understand what their ecosystem of devices and permissions and accounts is doing, and you know, see and understand, like, you know, for instance, being able to say, oh, you know, my phone thinks it's sending voice traffic right now, but there's no reason for it to be doing that. That's an interesting mm-hmm. piece of data. I can now, you know, adapt my behavior on the basis of that. We're very bad at making also security systems opaque systems right now. That, that methodology, is that more applicable to those sort of big Microsoft-sized companies that have, like, I guess, a sheer volume of you know, enormous reams of data that you can make that sort of analysis from? Can you apply that to, to smaller systems? I mean, so right now they are the ones... It's actually, as much as anything, they're the ones who have the system engineering time. Yeah, sure. You know, it's not... Yes, you're not going to be able to do the same statistical work on a smaller scale, but you can build many, you know, mirrors of many of the same kinds of defense systems, but it, it takes programmer time and development mm-hmm. time, and software is fantastically expensive to write. And this is, this is kind of where I'm starting to push, is looking at how can we come up with structures that let us build those mm-hmm. tools that people need without needing to be a Microsoft. So let's uh, move on to look at some of those ways then. So um, let's talk about Open ITP first, which is yeah. one of the organizations you're involved in. What is that? What so is the Open ITP is the Open Internet Tools Project. It is a um, support organization for the developers of counter-surveillance and counter-censorship um, software. And I've been doing, until I guess this weekend, I was doing um, work with them, running a, running a peer review board to get um, software tools reviewed. One of the issues is that a lot of the security tools that we tell high-risk users to depend on have never actually seen any kind of meaningful security Mm -hmm. review, you know, which most software has never seen any kind of meaningful security review. But here it actually matters, so we're working on trying to get that changed. And it's a slow process. And it's also, I mean, to get one tool reviewed 
commercially properly is forty or fifty thousand dollars, you know, and then the, the development team needs to have the time to respond to the bugs that are mm-hmm. found and that kind of thing. And then this needs to really be an ongoing process, and you need to talk about software development lifecycle and other stuff, you know. And, it, and it's just a giant, a giant problem. So that's and that's kind of what. You know, so I'm, I'm no longer with OpenITP basically because they ran out of money, mm. you know, because it's really hard to do this kind of work on grant funding. But was the idea as well to develop? You were talking about looking at existing software, but is the idea also to develop tools? That wasn't within OpenITP's mission yeah. scope. I mean, OpenITP did, did and, and still does fund developers, and, but in small ways, mm-hmm. you know. Let's talk about another one then, Trike, which is another open source Project. Yeah, so Trike is, Trike is where a lot of the systems failures work that I do mm-hmm. started um, back in 2004, I guess. Um, Trike is a threat modeling tool for looking at what security means, um, which is really looking at what efficacy means. Like, what is a system trying to do? What is the set of steps it's trying to perform? Who's trying to perform them under what rules and what conditions? And then looking at all the different ways that that can fail and how you want the system to respond to those failures and then how those failures might implement themselves. So, yeah, so it's a, it's a tool, and that's, that's kind of the core of this modeling stuff mm-hmm. for me. And now I'm taking that set of, of things and trying to figure out how to apply it to, um, to larger structures, so looking at, um, well, not, not larger structures, but more in-person structures. Yeah. So one of the things that we don't have right now, we don't really have very much good advice at all for high-risk users on the ground of, like, how you combine digital and physical security um, with risk analysis to, you know, accomplish some set of tasks, you know, and even how you think about that at a conceptual level, you know, we don't have the material, in the material in the models yet. So I've been spending a bunch of time, like, looking at DoD small unit tactics manuals to see not what they're telling people, but to see the thinking that generates that mindset that they're trying to then communicate to people. And what is that? Give us a sort of example. I mean, I'm still, I'm, yeah, that's, sure, that's sure. sort of where I'm, I'm digging going. in right now. You know, <laughs> but looking at concepts around efficacy and mobility mm-hmm. and what position means, what, you know, what agency means, what the maintenance of agency means. You know, and this gets off into, into stuff like the IDF. Oh, the IDF tactical paper that came from the kind of um, Deleuze and Guattari smooth versus striated space about, you know, forcing your adversary to move through space in a more constrained way than you move through space, hopefully without all the human rights violations mm-hmm. that go with that particular movement doctrine. Um, this is where the IDF started saying that, well, you know, in Palestine, all the Palestinians have to walk down the road, but instead we're just going to blast holes through apartment blocks linearly so we can stay off the streets um, because we don't care about anyone who lives in those apartment buildings, so we can just turn them into our new roads that only we can access, which has worked for them, but is, you know, horrific. Um, <laughs> um, so let's talk about other ways then in which that, once you've done that analysis using Trike, then how we can perhaps apply some of the things you learn to those sort of social systems, again, rather yeah. than talking about you know, on a more sort of human level. Yeah, I mean, so... Understanding social systems failures is, <clears throat> to a certain extent, it's, it's, a, it's a very different ballgame because you don't have, like a social system is never going to fail in the same way sure. twice. It doesn't have like a repeatable, this is, this is what happens until you get up to like, well, we can, we can say that, for instance, austerity is a completely pointless, you know, um, fiscal nightmare and useless for anything but giving money to the rich because we have data at a statistical level now because we can say, 
you know, I mean, we can say so from a theoretical perspective, but if we want to look at observed reality, we can now, you know, I mean, even the IMF is admitting <laughs> that this is, you know, catastrophic and just simply doesn't work. Um, but, you know, because we've, we've abstracted it across enough cases, you, you, you've, you, you are no longer in the space of anecdote. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there is a lot of room for looking at systems within the space of anecdote, and this is where I get off into kind of some of this Nordic LARP world of prototyping, um, you know, um, fictively prototyping social rule structures mm-hmm. and saying, well, okay, we, we have N equals 1 for this particular social rule now. What can N equals 1 tell us? Because N equals 1 can still tell us some things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't think I would try... And I mean, so the, the work I'm doing with trying to adapt trike for social structures yeah. for... Um, for small groups and, and high-risk users, in a lot of ways is looking at how I can turn something which is a fairly formal, like, turn-the-crank kind of model yeah. and shift it into something which is more heuristic, more narrative, more lived process, um, because that's the kind of model that works for mm-hmm. people interacting. You know, it's... Um, how would you... Give you a sort of concrete example that we could... So I, I, um, I don't remember the exact set of questions right now, but one of the people I'm working with has kind of got eight questions that she has um, the, the journalists and activists that she works with ask themselves about, you know, what are you trying to do? Who's trying to stop you? How do you, you know, how did you do it last time? How did they try to stop you last time? Did it work? Mm-hmm. You know, what are you going to do differently this time? You know, and it's kind of walking through people or walking people through uh, a thing which is very much like the kind of model that I'd build out with trike, but a version that, that people can actually yeah. interact with. You know, and then that becomes a ritual. That becomes a thing that, like, you know, every week you have a meeting where you're talking about, oh, this is what, you know, our, our little news group is going to do this week or whatever. Um, and then at that meeting, you can kind of stand up and say, okay, are we doing, you know, are we doing anything that's different from normal that has some security risks? Okay, let's talk through the eight questions about whatever the most interesting whatever the thing that we're worried about the most is this week, or let's just kind of run through them for normal office security or whatever, and it becomes part of the ritual of your kind of weekly existence or daily existence in that, you know, in the high-risk context. Um, and a lot of what we're dealing with engineering here, in addition to getting people to do this and getting people to think about the things they need to think about, is getting people to keep feeling empowered so that they have a sense of agency, so they can actually respond, so that they... Um, you know that's that's very heavily tied in with people actually doing the work. Mm-hmm. You know, as soon as as soon as people feel like, well, we're just going to lose, we're just, we we have no hope here, then all of a sudden the precautions that they could take that would make a difference start going out the window. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's a certain amount of that kind of emotional engineering yeah. in how you approach a tactic like that. So I mean, there's probably going to be some crossover here, but I want to move on to a, another mm-hmm. organisation we're involved in while we're talking about you know humanitarian activism and things. I mean, this is um, uh, Geeks Without Bounds, mm-hmm. which you're on the advisory board of. So tell us who they are, and then we'll talk about what some, some of the work they're doing. So Geeks Without Bounds is looking at all of the projects that are coming out of Kickstarters, coming out of, you know, like, space apps and all of these different kind of NGO-bordering Kickstarter, or not Kickstarter, um, hackathon-type structures, and saying, well, okay, it's all well and good to have a hackathon, and maybe you come up with something really interesting over a weekend, and maybe you even have people who have some commitment to taking it somewhat further, but, you know, they just sort of walked in, not necessarily off the street, but they're not part of whatever space they're working in. They don't have the connections. They don't understand who their users are. 
you know, I mean, they have a weekend's worth of understanding who their users are, maybe, but at most. So Geeks Without Bounds um, attempts to be a humanitarian accelerator that can basically work with these projects, get them in touch with user groups, provide them with mentoring, you know, at least make introductions to people who might be able to provide some funding so that these things that come out of hackathons don't just peter out and it's like, well, that was a great idea and a bunch of people wrote a bunch of code for a weekend and they felt great about themselves and then they went back to their day jobs for the man and isn't that lovely? You know, and then this code isn't reliable, isn't maintained, doesn't ship. It's, you know, it just, all of this effort is actually not doing anything, mm-hmm. which is sort of the default. It doesn't mean that every hackathon project, even if even if Guap had infinite bandwidth, you know, not every hackathon project is going to turn into something. But it does mean that we can say, okay, this hackathon produced one project that is actually really important mm-hmm. and honestly, you know, needs to be delivered into the field. Provides, cap- you know, potentially provides capabilities that you know we don't have otherwise. Let's support that project and get it actually out the door. What sort of thing? Is there anything we can say? Um, oh, gosh, I'm trying to remember. We've, we, we've done a number of classes of three or four projects each. Um, there have been a few water mapping things, a few... Um, I'm trying to remember. I don't, I don't have the project list in, <laughs> no, in sure. the front of my mind right now. So that's kind of where Guab has been. Where it's starting to go now is it's starting to move more in the direction of working as an intermediary between emergency response organizations and... You know what, I guess for a while they were calling it volunteer technical communities, mm-hmm. but, you know, so like when, um, when Sandy hit New York, there were a bunch of different responses, including a bunch of the Occupy kids who mm-hmm. came out and created Occupy Sandy and ran, in fact, some of the most effective aid delivery organizations, especially immediately after mm-hmm. the event, they, because they were embedded in the community. They already mm-hmm. knew all these people. They, they had resources to draw on much more quickly than FEMA could, you know, because, I mean, it takes FEMA a week to stand Mm -hmm. up at full strength, even if they really decide they're going for it. And they just had an entirely different kind of engagement, you know, and now this was an engagement that was not very legible to the folks at FEMA because, you know, it's like, well, who's in charge here? You know, somebody somebody shows up at at one of the churches that they were operating resource distribution centers out of and, and says, well, who's in charge? Well, nobody's in charge, like... You know, we're all, you know, it's, it's, not a, it's not a vertical organization. It's a horizontal organization. Mm-hmm. And eventually, the, eventually everybody just learned that if somebody asks you who's in charge, I'm in charge. You know, and then you figure out what they actually need and who they actually need to talk to. And then you, but it's just this, this cultural mismatch between this top-down org that expects a command structure and is completely paralyzed without one. So there was a, there was a group there that was, um, had come out of some work at Camp Roberts, which mm-hmm. is a Department of Defense Humanitarian Assistance and Disaster Relief prototype proving ground, I guess, um, which is the FEMA Innovation Corps, sure. um, which ended up acting as a big chunk of the go-between between the formal FEMA and the informal Occupy Sandy, mm-hmm. trying to help people figure out how to talk to each other. And so this is one of the places that Guab is going, is basically explaining horizontal structures to vertical organizations yeah and vice versa in emergent situations. Yeah, this is what I was going to ask whether that conversation is going on, because obviously those yeah. horizontal structures are obviously yeah. going to get you know, bigger and more, yep. more commonplace. Yep, and, it's, and I think that how, how those interactions go is actually profoundly important for what the horizontal structures become. Mm-hmm. Um, Quentin Norton has talked about this a certain amount, looking at um, what happened with Anon, 
when they started, or with Anonymous, when they started getting really targeted by the FBI. You know, Anonymous became a much more aggressive and hostile organization in response to the aggression and hostility poured into it by FBI infiltrators. You know, it really was mostly just kind of about the lulls. And sometimes the lulls, you know, sometimes you're on the other end of the internet laughing at you, and that really kind of sucks. But it wasn't, it wasn't pointed yeah. in that kind of way. And now, you know, yes, it's become much more politicized, and, you know, and there are often there are anonymous operations that perform politics that I mostly agree with, but they're performing them much, much more aggressively. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and the FBI is going to have to deal with the fallout of the thing that they've created. You know, because they taught Anonymous how to be violent. Yeah. Um, and this is one of the things that as we look at horizontal organizations growing and gaining not just more power necessarily, because that's not quite the right frame, but the ability to stand up infrastructure at a scale that challenges nation states very quickly, because that's, that's what horizontal organizations can do that weirds nation states out, yeah. is they can just say, oh... We need an X. We're going to build an X overnight. And it's going to be janky and not quite work, but it'll be enough of the X that we need. You know, and there, there are obviously you can do this much better in, in virtual infrastructure than in physical infrastructure. Um, but a lot of those organizations are learning how to trade um, you know, physical for virtual infrastructure. Um, and I'm trying to remember who it was that, who kind of accused uh, Al-Qaeda of being like a Facebook page with an arms budget. Um, you know, but that's a really interesting trade-off when you talk about virtual organizations that can stand up physical infrastructure very quickly. And okay, how do you want to teach those those virtual organizations? How do you want to impart culture mm-hmm. onto those virtual organizations as they become a thing in the world? You know, which culture do you want to teach? Which social scripts do you want to rehearse? What kinds of infrastructure do you want to give people mm-hmm. experience at standing up quickly? You know, this is a question that, that all of the, the vertical organizations in the world get to answer. Um, unfortunately, in most cases, they don't even know that they're being asked the question. Because if they could see the ability of a horizontal organization to stand up infrastructure yeah. as a specific act in the world, they wouldn't be a virtual or, or wouldn't be a vertical organization anymore. They'd be some <clears throat> post-vertical hybrid, yeah, hybrid semi-network, semi-institution, something else. It seems ironic that the FBI or the American government could could learn lessons from an organization like Anonymous that they could take forward then for dealing with bigger or more dangerous organizations like Al-Qaeda, for instance. Well, except they, they have shown no, uh, yeah, they've but, shown no ability yeah. to learn those lessons. So. Well, this is what I was going to say. You, you know, yeah. We talked earlier about the conversation that's perhaps starting, but, I mean, that's what I mean. Do they care? You know, is it even, will that even happen, I think? We've, we've talked about you know, FEMA, which you can sort of see how... The barriers to that working is, is the size of the organization, the fact that it, stops, it, it slows everything down, you know, it takes ages to get everything going rather than it being necessarily intransigence and them not wanting to do it. But with, you know, the FBI and things, it seems like there's not necessarily the will. Yeah, I mean, most of the entities of what... I, what um, there's a, there's a, a beautiful paper on the double state in the Harvard National Security Journal that splits USG into the Madisonian institutions, mm-hmm. which are the court and the executive and Congress and that kind of thing, and the Trumanite institutions, which are the national security bureaucracies, basically. And the Trumanite bureaucracies generally have a few people in them who are paid to think. Yeah. Um, not very many of them, 
But the people who are paid to think in the Truman Knight bureaucracies are generally pretty smart, and a lot of these guys genuinely get it. However, they are structurally disabled from communicating a lot of that understanding until it can be operationalized in a fairly rigid manner. FEMA, the, the process by which FEMA came to have an innovation core was interesting. So Camp Roberts came out of, among other things, the Star Tides program at the National Defense University, and this guy, Linton Wells, who's done some various interesting things. Um, he's responsible for there being hexierts built in the Pentagon every year. And, but so it was basically came out of the, you know, they kept fielding hardware in disasters, and there's a, there's a parallel kinetic event. But they kept fielding hardwares that, you know, had made it through the entire acquisition process, met all of the specs, and then they tried to do integration, which generally happened on someone's body in the field in an emergent situation, and shit just didn't work. And they realized that eventually that what they needed to do was to get stuff. There's this tech readiness level TRL frame from one, which is a napkin sketch, basically, to 10, which is, you know, like field-proven existing supply chain. Um, so somewhere in three or four, in kind of the early functional prototype stage, they needed to just start getting this stuff out into the field with all of the other stuff that was either already deployed or also at that same stage, and just try plugging them into each other and try putting them on somebody's body and seeing, oh, no, that like this harness needs to be redesigned because it interferes with whatever other thing. So now this is a relatively established event, and FEMA and DHS and a lot of other organizations come to this. I've, I've been there as an observer a few times, and it's a fascinating environment for understanding how these mm-hmm. orgs think. One of the things that happened a while ago, so the Civil Air Patrol in the U.S. has a, a network of about 700 or so Cessnas after a disaster. One of the things that they've historically done is they get the planes up in the air. This is, I guess, technically the auxiliary wing of the Air Force, but it's sort of like halfway between the Air Force and the Boy Scouts. Mm-hmm. Um, and no, seriously, yeah. it's about the space that it occupies. And uh, they get the planes up in the air very quickly, and they go and they go start taking photographs. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem historic, and then those photographs go to FEMA and, and other response charts. The problem historically has been the photographs that they send back are actually completely useless because they're taken from about a thousand feet. Um, they're they're specific damage, and maybe there's a scrawled notation that might or might not be accurate, or like a voice transcript of roughly where they think it is. Yeah. But this is actually not very useful. So we got a bunch of senior FEMA field response people and a bunch of the Civil Air Patrol people in a room and said, okay, let's talk about what would actually be useful here. And now after disasters, Civil Air Patrol flies grids with GPS coordination from 10,000 feet just shooting down and just do straight, stitchable, mapping ima- you know, mappable imagery that can then go to either a crowdsourced or traditional imagery analysis pipeline mm-hmm. And now that information is actually usable. And FEMA Innovation Core came out of that, which was interesting because that was two already fairly, CAP is, is fairly vertical, right? Mm-hmm. And that was sort of a coherent approach, but that was still enough out of the box for these guys that they could be like, oh, okay, maybe there's something to this kind of integration, and it gave us a, a, a toehold. And then when Occupy Sandy happened, the people who went down with the Innovation Core there, you know, because they'd had this previous experience of like, look, guys, if you just think a little bit outside of the box and are willing to change the way you work, we can do this other stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, which meant that there could be interaction with Occupy Sandy. It wasn't perfect and it had hosts of problems, but it's still a really interesting model of looking at how you can get this kind of organizational and institutional change. The last one of the, uh, the projects that you have a hand in I want to look at then, I think it touches over pretty much everything we've already 
talked about is, a, is the Briar project. So Briar is a, um, the, the jargony version is Briar is a delay-tolerant, transport-agnostic, decentralized, secure messaging tool. The yeah. non-jargony so version <laughs> of it is, uh, so it's a messaging tool that can run on a phone or laptop. It will eventually run on all kind of five standardish platforms, at least, that, um, so there's no central trust anchor. There's no, like, central database of users you know, I make an introduction to Adam, we exchange trust credentials, then Adam can introduce me to somebody else, but there's no, there's no database where all of this goes mm-hmm. back to. The, uh, it runs over whatever transports you have available, whether it's Bluetooth, ad hoc Wi-Fi, traditional internet connections. We use Tor fairly heavily, both as a really sort of effective hammer for dealing with NAT and annoyingly set up networks various mm-hmm. places, but also to give the option of unlinkability between participants so that you know an outside observer can't tell who you're talking to. They can tell that you're talking, and they can probably tell that you're talking over Briar, but they can't tell who on the network you're talking to. Um, we can also run over USB sticks and motorcycles, you know, and it's designed to be resilient to network shutdowns for any number of reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, this started looking, this started coming out of Suki and some of the London student protests, um, but you know, it applies just as well in um, emergent or complex disaster situations where you have less um, less reliable connectivity and s- some real security needs. Whether it's because you're dealing with a complex disaster situation with adversarial forces or just, you know, public health information and that kind of thing. And it's delay tolerant, so, you know, we can deal with data moving around via mm-hmm. motorcycle or whatever. We deal with latencies between a microsecond and a month. So Briar is the messaging app. Briar has a few, um, a few alphas out right now. There'll be a beta out within the next few months um, for Android. There's a, an underlying network technology or an underlying um, protocol called Bramble, which is what it's built on top of, which will eventually be a full uh, remote procedure call stack intended to allow you to, say, take a a geographic information system application that you might use, like um, Ushahidi or Tarifa, you know, some of these these kind of crowdsource mapping tools, and very easily convert that to a completely decentralized version of that so that you don't need to have a single map. I spent a while talking with the Tarifa folks at the uh, Open Humanitarian Initiative Code Sprint a while ago in, in, um, at Aston in Birmingham. And so Tarifa is an interesting platform. Tarifa basically takes this crowdsource mapping approach of like, here are all of the water points in Dar es Salaam, um, and it lets you report back in what, um, oh, this water point's broken, and then somebody can confirm it, and then you can dispatch somebody to fix it, and, you know, you know, eventually it gets the fix gets checked and reported back to the original person. So Tarifa is a tool for building generic workflows of that kind of process plus geographically distributed information plus approval cycle. Now, where we want to take that is to uh, a decentralized Briar version of that where each step of that approval flow can just be a different mini application or a different role, and you don't need to have a single central coordinating structure. Mm-hmm. As a political statement, so there, there are technical reasons why this is interesting, especially in, uh, in that particular deployment context, but as a political structure, this is very interesting because when you have a decentralized system like that and you have a system which permits anonymity and permits 
you know, these, these kind of decentralized security structures, you can compose a centralized system. You can compose the version of that system that is controlled by city government and the World Bank, has central authentication, has all of these properties that a traditional top-down structure would want to interact with that kind of approval flow. However, that's a configuration function of the system. You can just as easily convert that to a completely decentralized, delegatory democracy, whatever you, you know, whatever political structure you want, version of the system. All of the infrastructure still works. Mm-hmm. All of the infrastructure still gives you the same advantages of this thing that you've built up. And it's literally just a config file change that you can ship to an existing network, which is interesting because it means that experimenting with your fundamental governance structure is now the... We haven't made the social side of it any easier. You still have to deal with, you know, because that's the actual work, right? But the infrastructural side of it, you know, all of this is an infrastructure of governance. This doesn't get rebuilt very easily. You can't turn this into a general assembly with a config script. It's interesting to have a governance, the infrastructure of governance being able to be shifted like that very quickly. You know, and for instance, this might mean that, so let's say FEMA ran on a structure like that. Then, okay, so you meet up with the, with the Occupy Sandy kids if they're running on a compatible platform with a you know, different set of configuration rules. Now you can have a social negotiation, which then also becomes a technical negotiation, and you can hook these systems into each other, and they can kind of bleed into each other a bit. Mm. You know, and, and what that looks like, you know, there's an entire practice that we need to develop of how you negotiate structural borders between centralized and decentralized systems that are operating within the same fundamental infrastructure protocol. But I think there's a getting to the point where we can start doing the work of coming up with the social scripts to change how FEMA fails, to change how Occupy fails Mm -hmm. in in these emergent disasters. And and having the toolkit to do that is a very interesting place to be going. Mm Okay, just, just one more question, and then I'm going to open it up to the floor for questions. But I just wanted to talk, finish off talking about your art when you're, when you're not doing this, you paint. Yeah. And um, I just wondered to what extent that painting is influenced by the work you do. Because I was looking at some of the paintings on, on your website, mm-hmm. and they reminded me of you know, networks and patterns and you know, mathematical patterns. And things. Yeah, I mean, so I feel somewhat sheepish about my painting <laughs> practice because it turns out that being homeless and being a painter do not merge very well. And I've been traveling full-time for about four years, so I haven't been getting very much art done, um, or very much painting done anyway. But yeah, I mean, it, to me, it is the same practice, right? Mm-hmm. You know, one a big component of what I do is I look at the world and I see systems in it. And that's looking at a canvas and seeing systems mm-hmm. in it. You know, one of the reasons I've been meaning to actually get back to that practice is because I'm realizing that there are limits of how I can explain systems without having recourse to some other different modality. You know, and that there's a lot of things of like, you know, you kind of have this feel in your mind of like, well, this is an electrical grid and it has a certain kind of network structure and it has a certain kind of dynamic and a certain kind of failure dynamic. And, you know, these are things that if you play with the systems long enough, you get an intuitive feel for this is what that system feels like. And then you can reason by analogy and see, like, oh, if I look at this system over here, it feels like a little bit of this plus a little bit of that. And, oh, and there's something weird here that's unique to this, right? Um, 
but being able to certainly communicate that outside of your own head is not easily done. And that's sort of where some of that is going for me. Not that it's necessarily going to become an effective communication tool, but maybe it can become an affective communication Mm -hmm. tool. We'll wrap up there. So I've been talking to Eleanor Sater. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.